You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast. Before we get started, you've heard us yakking about this on our last few episodes, but this is the last call for our March class called Why God Died, How Atonement Theories Try to Explain Salvation. Yeah, and it's taught by our good friend and nerd and resident Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. It is live for one night, just in a couple of days on March 28th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. And as always with all of our classes, it's pay what you can. Until the class ends. Yes, until the class then ends. Then it's $25. Then it's $10,000. So, so go ahead right. and go sign up at thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash atonement. Today we're talking about Psalms isn't what you think it is with our friend Joshua James. Now, Josh is an affiliate uh, assistant professor of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, but he's also a pastor and the author of Psalms for Normal People, which is the newest book in our lineup. That's right. And it is about to come out. So we're just going to plug it here for just a minute. And uh, if you like what you heard on the episode with Josh today, you can hear how good he is at articulating some of these nerdy concepts in a way that has some pastoral significance, but also is just a really fun look at how Psalms operates, which is so different than maybe you would have been taught growing up in terms of what it is and mm-hmm. what we're supposed to do with that. So the book comes out April 17th. You can purchase it wherever you can buy your books. So go ahead and bookmark it. Put it in your brain, in your calendar, in your Palm Pilot, in your BlackBerry. (laughs) April 17th, Psalms for Normal People. But until then, to tide you over. Welcome to this episode. The way that we tend to read Psalms is much like the way that we used to listen to now that's what I call music. But when you pull back and you see the entire collection, I think it's much more analogous to like a really good playlist where there's been intentional editorial shaping that's taken place that has organized the entire collection. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. 
So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Well, welcome to this episode of the podcast, Josh. It's great to have you. It is great to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much for writing Psalms for Normal People. Yeah. We are so excited to have that. And, you know, we thought maybe before people get a chance to read that, we should start with this question. What is a psalm? Let me let me just peel back the curtain a little bit for your listeners and let them know. I'm going to shatter all of their dreams here. We as guests get a list of questions ahead of time to prepare. So... This was the first question that I got. And actually, I feel like it's one of the more difficult questions on this entire list of things. Now, I hope that also doesn't set me up to answer all of the rest of them with much eloquence, because I don't know if that's... We have no expectations Okay, of thank you. Let's, let's set that's the bar okay. low and see, see how high I can get. But defining a psalm is difficult, primarily because the content within the book of Psalms is so diverse. So I think the best way to talk about what a psalm is, is to do so descriptively. What we have in psalms is a collection of Israel's poems, prayers, and litanies. The term where you know we're talking about psalms, that comes from a Greek word, psalmos, and that's a tie to, to something about music or a song. So some people want to refer to psalms as having something to do with music. So we have this very diverse collection of 150 compositions within the book of Psalms that could be anything from a poem, a prayer, a litany, or like a responsive reading, perhaps, something to do with music. Even as you turn the page into Psalms, you can see that it's formatted differently, it's poetic, it looks and reads very differently than prose, but beyond that, it's a wide array of different sorts of pieces of literature within this book. Okay. So that's a psalm. It's all over the place. Pretty much. Yeah. And I think that's something that gets lost on readers too, because when you go into it, all of it's really foreign and we just kind of read it all as these things that we don't necessarily understand, but all look kind of similarly. But, you know, with regard to the form of each composition and the content, they're just very, very diverse. Well, maybe can we jump into that and talk a little bit about the different types of psalms? Because I think that's helpful as you're talking about the diversity of it. I think it might be nice to maybe go through the different genres or different types, maybe to just do a little deeper dive on what you mean by diversity. Yeah, that's a good question. So there was this guy named Hermann Gunkel. I'm going to take you back and we're going to get nerdy here a little bit to the early 20th century. There was a a German biblical scholar named Hermann Gunkel who basically set out to classify all of the poems within the book of Psalms. He did that by looking at all kinds of ancient poetry. So he's dealing with a massive corpus of these poems and prayers. He's reading them, and he's trying to identify points of similarity amongst this big collection, and then he puts them into categories. So Gunkel ended up coming up with five major categories for these individual psalms. They are hymns or praise psalms, royal psalms, which are psalms about the king, Then he's got two categories or two genres which are very closely linked. One is a communal lament and one is an individual lament. And the only thing that separates the two is who is speaking, whether it's a 
plural we or an individual I. So we've got the communal lament, which is the people of Israel uh, lamenting a situation, talking about all of the bad things that are happening, or an individual psalmist writing about the things that are taking place in their life, which are more personal. Uh, and then the fifth category that Gunkel came up with were the Thanksgiving Psalms. Now, he also had a bunch of minor categories uh, like the pilgrimage songs, uh, which are basically people who are going on pilgrimage to the temple, or victory songs, legends, Torah psalms. So he has a bunch of minor categories, but it's those five major categories that began to dominate the conversation within psalm scholarship in the early 20th century, the hymns, royal psalms, communal and individual laments, and then the Thanksgiving psalms. Now, those five end up being whittled down to three, which is what most scholars talk about now, and those are the praise psalms, the lament psalms, and the thanksgivings. Gunkel and others defined these categories based on the content of the psalms. So like a praise psalm, clearly it's going to say, praise the Lord. It's, it's going to tip its cards really quickly. Uh, the content leads you to see that this is a psalm singer who is praising Yahweh for who Yahweh is, what Yahweh has done, that, those sorts of things. But then also there's a formal component. So Gunkel was the guy who created a method of interpreting the Bible known as form criticism. So he was wanting to look at how these poems move, how they were uh, shaped. And you can think of this in similar terms to maybe how we think about movie genres. So scary movies have a certain way that they unfold. And if you've seen one scary movie, then you, you've you seen a lot of them just because they're kind of got a stereotypical structure. Maybe a better example would be a Hallmark Christmas movie. Big city mogul has to go back to the country town where they were raised, and there's a lot of problems there. And if by the end of that movie, the big city person hasn't scorned all of their riches and their condo in New York City for the reclaimed love of their life to move back home to this country place. And if at the end of that movie, there's not like a, a twinkly lit Christmas pageant where the two main characters share this climactic kiss, then you're not watching a Hallmark Christmas movie. So it's got this stereotypical movement from the beginning to the end. And Gunkel was trying to identify these sorts of movements within the Psalms formally. So just sticking with a praise Psalm, it's got at least a couple of different parts that you can anticipate. The first part is a call to praise and it moves then into the reasons or the motivations for the praise. So, you know, Psalm 117 would say, praise the Lord, all you nations. And then it moves into the reasons for great is the Lord's steadfast love. And then it may or may not culminate with a final call to praise, which is just, you know, praise the Lord. And Psalm 117 does. So it kind of ticks all of these boxes that Gunkel was thinking had to be true of the genre formally how it moved, how it was structured, how it gets from point A to point B. So the genres aren't just content-driven, there's also a formal aspect as well. And also, I mean, I'm recalling years back uh, studying these things, and you, you, your recollection's better than mine, but there are psalms that don't, like some of the psalms just don't neatly fit these categories. Right. Because some of them have like elements of more than one of those three or five types. Like they can start off very lamenty 
and end very positively or something like that. And some are just lamenting all the way through. So it makes it, I mean, some have accused Gunkel of being German. Yes, right. Exactly. Right? And, and putting everything in categories. But I, I think, would you agree they're still helpful, right? They're, they're, they're good ways of wrapping our arms around this diverse literature, even if they're not perfect. Yeah. I think so. But you, you are right that he's been accused of, he's created these genre categories and is the one saying what is stereotypical, right? So right. he isn't necessarily the final authority. So then people have looked at these genre categories since uh, his work in the early 20th century, and they've kind of, you know, right. adapted them, morphed them, sort of massaged them a bit. And also you have to figure out too, sometimes within the stereotypical formal movement the psalmist doesn't go there and maybe on purpose. So the classic example would be Psalm 88. It's a lament psalm. In the lament psalms, you have either individual or communities, you know, lamenting their situation, telling God about all of the problems that are true in their life, which kind of push against the core theology that you might see in a praise psalm. In a praise psalm, everything's great. God is good. Uh, You can talk about God's character, but then it all hits the fan and your life is lived and it doesn't seem to be working out that way and and people push against that. Well, oftentimes in 99 out of 100, the lament psalms will present their problem and then it'll turn at the end to a confession of trust. Like, regardless of what is happening in my life, Yahweh, yet I will trust you. But Psalm 88 doesn't go there. It leaves on this really dark note. Uh, the last couple lines are, they surrounded me like a flood all day long from all sides. They close in on me. The psalmist here is talking about his enemies. And then in verse 18, it says, you, God, have caused friend and neighbor to shun me, my companions are in darkness. Or another way to translate that would be, darkness is my closest friend. And then the screen goes black, the curtain falls, credits roll, there is no turn to trust. Right. And that's, that's one of the ones that I think we can relate to more so than this stereotyped, yet I will trust you, you know, because that's not always the case. We don't always feel that. We don't always want to go there. So the psalmist of Psalm 88, by shirking that, and I don't even, I don't even want to put that on them necessarily because that's too gunkily, you know. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think they had this list of things that they have but, to But they, they they move beyond the formula yes. or something. I mean, it's probably fair to say that, I think. Like this is just a different kind of psalm. And what always intrigues me is that some group of scribes intentionally compiled these things. Right. And they said, yeah, this is a keeper. They didn't have to, but Psalm 88 is a keeper. So I, it's, uh, I think it's pretty wonderful. Can I ask you something else on Gunkel? Because the way Gunkel was presented to me in graduate school was his work was a big shift from reading the Psalms as merely reflections of people's experiences and moving it into another kind of setting entirely, a cultic setting, you know, a, a worship setting, a liturgical setting. So it's not so much about the individual's experiences, it's about how these things were used. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? Yeah, I think so. It is, there's shifts in Gunkel's scholarly life where at times he really adopts, like, these are the cries of the individual psalmist's heart. And he's almost like got an anti 
religious flair to it. It's like devotional literature. But then there's a shift where he gets on board with, these are poems that are meant to be used within Israel's communal worship setting, whatever that looked like. And I don't think that we can reconstruct that with much certainty or accuracy, but these are almost like the things that you say in worship. For example, like the Thanksgiving Psalms. Thanksgiving Psalms are the second half, so to speak, of a lament psalm. In a lament psalm, we've been talking about these, you you present all of the issues that's going on, you kind of call God to task, you ask God to do something, but then it ends, and we don't know if God answers that prayer or not. Well, in the Thanksgiving psalms, we absolutely do, because they retell their story, and they say, I was you know, in the pit, and everything was was going terribly for me. I called out to Yahweh, and Yahweh has answered my prayer, and here I am. But also with that, a lot of these Thanksgiving Psalms, they're sort of formatted as if someone who's lived through that, prayed those prayers, received an answer that's positive, has gotten out of the metaphorical pit. Now they're in a worship setting, and they're presenting a thank offering for what God has done. It's very ritualistic, it's liturgical, it's something that happens in a worship setting. And for all of the things that we cannot say about Psalms, namely who wrote them, why they were written, when they were written, where they were, all of that stuff is, there's a lot of question marks. Scholars have sort of landed on, we can at least say that they were written to be used in some way, shape, or form in Israel's communal worship setting. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. 
And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So maybe we can go back because you you just like knocked a lot of things out there off the list of we don't know who, we don't know when, we don't know where, but let's back up and maybe talk a little bit about that because I think for a lot of people, you know, my tradition growing up, it was assumed like David wrote all of these, but it doesn't square with the idea of compilations and we don't really know the origin. So could you say a little bit more on who wrote them or do we know who wrote some of them and not others or where do we stand with that? Okay, so in an early version of the book, I tried to play up some of the comedic value of what I was attempting to do, and that meant that I just had a bunch of really cheeky chapter titles. And one of the chapter titles that I came up with was, I don't know who wrote the Psalms, and neither does anybody else. My editor has helped me to sort of dial back some of that tone, so I'm trying to dial some of that back. But for me, at least, the short answer is we actually don't know who wrote the Psalms, and I know that's difficult for people to hear or maybe just surprising for people to hear. As I was writing this book and throwing some chapters to people to read, you know, one of the comments on this chapter in particular was, well, you know, my study Bible says... And then it would go on this little rant about how David was involved in the authorship of the Psalms. There's a couple reasons why David is closely associated with the book. In the narratives about David's life in Samuel, we get this bit that David is a really good musician. There's a story about how Saul is being tormented by evil spirits that Yahweh has placed upon him. Yeah, and that's I, another we, podcast. We, yeah, yeah, we forget that part. <laughs> let's, let's, we'll just skip past that. His attendants said, you should get somebody to come in here and play the lyre, and I know a guy. Apparently in the ancient world, like music had some sort of evil spirit fighting capabilities. So David was recommended to come in and play the lyre for Saul and help to alleviate some of his anxiety or issues that he was dealing with because of these evil spirits. So all throughout the narratives of David's life, there's this trope that he's a really good musician. He's later involved in the coordinating of temple music. So he's the one who puts people into those music playing roles within the temple. So, so David and music are kind of walking hand in hand on the beach together in the narratives about David's life. And then in Psalms, we get a bunch of what scholars call psalm titles, which is not the most uh, exciting of labels, I know, but this is the stuff like at the beginning of a psalm that would say something to the effect of, this is a a psalm of David. If you want to even get beyond that, it would say, here's an example from Psalm 63. It says, to the leader with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith. Most of these terms, we have no idea what is going on. And Pete, to your earlier question too, this is one of the reasons why that temple or worship focus was brought in, because we've got all of these psalm titles that give instructions to to worship leaders and sort of coach them through on maybe the tune or something that we can't quite put together, but it's got this tie to worship. But then it also says that in Psalm 63, a psalm of David. Now, when we hear that, we usually very quickly associate its meaning with 
That's a psalm that David wrote. And there's a ton of these psalms. In Hebrew, it would be a Led David psalm. Led David is a compound word that includes le, which is a Hebrew preposition. It can mean a bunch of different things. And then David, which is David. There's 73 of these Led David psalms in the Hebrew version of psalms. I don't know if we want to go here, but I'll throw it out here for the super nerds. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they bump that number up sort of arbitrarily from 73 to 85 Le David Psalms. Be that as it may, the Le David Psalms, we usually immediately take as that's authorship, but it's a bit more ambiguous. That preposition can mean any number of things, so it could just as easily be a psalm to David, for David, on behalf of David, inspired by David, concerning David, about David, a psalm that's dedicated to David, a psalm that's like belonging to the Davidic collection. So scholars are, they want to kind of pump the brakes here and say, this Le David term can mean any number of things. And it's not usually in the Hebrew Bible, that construction is not usually used to indicate authorship. It's more often used to indicate something else entirely. The other complicating factor here with these titles would be they're most likely added much, much, much later. So it's not as though whoever's writing these Psalms is slapping the title at the top. Most scholars would say a later editor is coming along to give notes on the function of the psalm, like how it's to be used and what we're supposed to do with it. That's the sort of idea here. So it's like it's a layer of interpretation. Yes. People later came along and interpreted the psalms as being whatever the le David means. It was connected to David somehow, but you're saying that originally that's probably not the case. Uh, Yeah, probably it's not there. Like that title's probably not there. Pete, your point about like it's a layer of interpretation, that's really made clear in what scholars call, drumroll please, the long psalm titles. So these are the titles that say things about when David was doing this or that. It, It sets the frame for a reading of the poem. Let's Psalm 51 is a good example. Psalm 51 is a a psalm of confession. It's about uh, the psalmist like talking about their sin. It's very hyperbolic. It's very intense. It's very emotional. And a later editor came along and said, hey, you know what would be good? If we take this psalm of confession and we let people read it through the lens of the David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan the prophet who comes to kind of tell David all of the ways in which he has fallen short. If they read it in light of that story, that'll really be an interesting hook for the rest of the psalm. But it's not, it's not historical. It's not, you know, the author saying, oh, I was reflecting on all of the debacles in my life, and this is when I wrote this psalm. It's somebody who's much later combining those two stories for the benefit of later readers to say, this is a sort of situation in which you might want to offer this sort of prayer. So, I mean, just to be clear here, so everybody's on board, the ascription like to David or for David, that's not the thing that's, oh, now we know David's really musical or whatever because he wrote all these Psalms. That is actually later Jewish tradition 
reading back into the Psalms something of David because they felt that connection was very, very important. Yes, I think that's the correct way of seeing it. Most people that just flip open their Bibles don't know that backstory, so they usually just treat it as this is a byline for an op-ed. You know, it's like the author of the psalm just wrote this at the top. But yeah, scholars are sort of unanimous on the view that this is a much later addition to the text by the scribal community or the people that are putting this book together for communal use within a worship setting. Do we have any indication of any timing of when these things are happening? So clearly, you know, these are individual psalms, so they're being produced at various times, but then at some point it seems like they get compiled and used in these cultic settings. At some point they've been given these these titles or ascriptions. So are there a sense of, of kind of timing or the evolution of the development of these? Yeah, this I think this is another place where historical criticism sort of lets us down, but it's not the fault of historical criticism. So that that whole enterprise of trying to get behind the Psalms and figure out, you know, the when and the who, it's incredibly difficult with Psalms because they're so ambiguous and intentionally so, right? If these are prayers that are to be used by a number of people in a worship setting, you can't really get super specific. But this would be like, you know, if I gave you I'm going to get real specific here and show some of my own musical cards. But if I give you Pearl Jam's first album, 10, and say, tell me when this was written, you would be depending upon the lyrics of that record to find any sort of hook in history that lets you place you know, the setting of that psalm or the history of that psalm, but that's not usually how music works. There's a couple of offhanded examples of where people are writing about like a historical event, but for the most part, it's just, it's ambiguous. So within psalms, we don't have a lot of those historical hooks to hang our hat on. You do get some mentions though of the exile. So Psalm 137, for example, begins by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. So there's like a hook there saying, okay, so this psalm at least was written in the aftermath of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of some of the Judahite people. And it's looking back to this monumental event. So within the book of Psalms, we've got these historical markers that at least put the final form of the book at that stage, even if some of those individual Psalms were written earlier. Now, beyond that, if you're, if you're actually talking about when were the titles added, that one's a lot more difficult, I think, to answer, and certainly beyond my pay grade, I believe. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See... Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, 
a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. I want to maybe go back to the different genres. And I was curious about the structure of the Psalms themselves, because from what I remember of these Psalms, it's not like there's a section of hymns, and then there's a sections of, of lament, and then thanksgiving. They're not organized by type. Again, this is Gunkel's analysis of these different ones. He's sort of picking them out here and there. So is there a structure to all 150? Is there a, a rhyme or a reason to how these were put together? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, this was something that blew my mind when I was in seminary, because I think most people approach Psalms as a collection of prayers that you can read and engage in certain moments of life. So you kind of flip around to find something that's germane to the situation that you find yourself in. And we treat each individual composition as its own entity. And when we finish it, we don't expect the next psalm to have anything to do with what we just read. I try to float this analogy in the book, and this one goes out to all the 90s kids out there in the world. The way that we tend to read psalms is much like the way that we used to listen to, now that's what I call music, or for the super Christians amongst us, like the WOW worship CDs. You, you remember these CDs that just are- You know what? I just saw the now, that's what we call music. I think it's volume 85 was being I advertised was, yes, on I, Facebook. <laughs> I thought that would be a funny little tidbit to show how far it has gone. And I can't believe that they're still making those. But like before streaming services and playlists, like having a collection of- all of your favorite songs on one CD that probably lived in that Case Logic book in your car that rode shotgun with you wherever you went. To have all of those songs on one CD was awesome. 
but you didn't expect it to have much logic from one song to the next. It was just a collection of things that you may or may not have appreciated. And some of the things you didn't appreciate at all, and you skipped them immediately. That's sort of how we approach Psalms. But when you pull back and you see the entire collection, I think it's much more analogous to like a really good playlist or to stick with the children of the 90s, like a CD that you burn. You know, you go to Napster, you get all the songs, you, you put them in a certain order. It's like you're trying to create a mood or something. And then you you draw with the Sharpie on the front of the, the CD. For folks that aren't like 90s kids, I'm, I'm not sure how much this tracks <laughs> with you. How do explain this to these people? Playlist so. for sure. I, my, right. uh, my daughter calls CDs and albums playlists. Okay. So when somebody comes out with something, she'd be like, oh yeah, Beyonce has a new playlist out. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of intentionality when you're creating something like that, you know, because you want, it's got to start out with something big and loud and it's got to get it kind of kicked off and then it might move into a more emotional spot in the record. And then it ends with, you know, a grand sort of encore crescendo, that sort of thing. And you can look at the Psalms in that sort of way where there's been intentional editorial shaping that's been taken place that has organized the entire collection. Now, scholars disagree on the degree to which this is true. Some people will say every single psalm has been placed in its current spot in the collection, and it has hooks that link it to the preceding psalm and the psalm that succeeds it. Now, that might be a little bit too much, but most scholars would say that there has been an intentional editorial shaping of the collection. And I'll just give you a couple of things that people will talk about. So they would say that Psalms has an intentionally editorially shaped introduction and conclusion. So Psalm 1 sort of sets the tone. It's the lenses through which you're to view the entire collection. And then at the end, you've got this conclusion that has been placed there. It's a crescendo of praise. Brueggemann talks about the movement from Psalm 1, which was a a Torah psalm. It's a psalm about obeying the Torah, meditating on the Torah. So it moves from obedience to praise at the end. You've got Psalms 146 through 150 that all sort of just hit you over the head. Praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. So it's moving you from the beginning of the book and this Torah obedience to the end of the book and this monumental call to praise. But beyond that, and this is the more interesting tidbit, beyond that, Psalms has been arranged and edited into five books Right off the bat, bells should be going off that link the five books of the Psalter with the five books of Moses. Like there's this intentional editorial shaping that's meant to say Psalms is a different form of instruction, but it's instruction nonetheless, and it's on par with the five books of Moses. Those five books, there's indications of editorial shaping, because at the end of each of these five books, there's a very similar doxology that's been added. So at the end of book one, book one is Psalms 1 through 41. So at the end of Psalm 41, it says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And then you get something similar at the end of book two, which is Psalm 
42 through 72, at the end of that, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. So you've got these doxologies at the end of each book that seem to scream out, somebody somewhere has organized this entire collection, placing them into five books, and at the end, appending a doxology to help you see that this entire collection has been put together on purpose. Mm -hmm. There's one other really cool aspect of this in the five books. Some people would say, and this is not unanimous, but some people would say there's a narrative that's being told from book one through book five. So in book one, it's dominated by Le David Psalms. It's all about David and it's different genres. It's got lament, it's got praise, it's got a bunch of different things that are happening. And it's sort of meant to draw you in to this world of David and the kingship. Book two continues David's rule, but you get this really weird note at the end of book two, it's Psalm 72. I already read the doxology, but you also get this note that says, the prayers of David are ended, which is not true, first of all, because there's other Le David Psalms after book two, but some people have said that this is more of a thematic, it's a signal to say the Davidic monarchy has collapsed and crumbled. Psalm 72 also, I should note, is not a Le David Psalm, but it's a Psalm of Solomon, his son, So there's like this transition at the end of book two that's going beyond David to Solomon, and it's moving towards the ultimate collapse of the Davidic monarchy, which shows up in the form of Israel being destroyed by Assyria and also more climactically, Judah being destroyed by Babylon. So in book three, you have all these communal laments. It's not individuals. It's the community, and they're all talking about the things that have taken place. In Psalm 78, you get a real clear nod to the fall of Israel. And then in Psalm 89, which is the end of book three, you get this psalm that starts with notes of God's covenant faithfulness to David, but towards the end, it shifts, and God has, quote, spurned and rejected David. It says that God is full of wrath against God's anointed. God has renounced the covenant with God's servant. God has defiled his crown in the dust. This is really intense language where the psalmist is just kind of going after Yahweh to say, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying God has been a big fat liar because the covenant that was supposed to be promised is now in shambles. The Davidic monarchy is totally gone to pot and now we have nothing. So from books one to book three, you've got David, you've got this transition in book two, you've got the ultimate collapse of the Davidic monarchy in book three, and then it shifts again in book four, which interestingly enough starts with a psalm of Moses. So it takes you back to time before the monarchy, almost like saying, hey guys, let's get our bearings now by going back to before all of this nonsense happened. And let's think about Moses and Torah and obedience. And then in book four, it shifts to celebrate Yahweh as the rightful king, which is just fascinating. And then in book five, last thing about the structure, the narrative, in book five, it begins 
with a psalm that's calling all of the exiles to come home. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and the west and the north. And you want it to say the south, but it actually says, and from the sea, which is weird. But it's like, it's telling all of these exiles to come back home. So the narrative, it goes from Davidic monarchy to a transition of power to the complete and utter collapse of the Davidic monarchy, back to Yahweh, who's the rightful ruler, to a post-exilic time where everyone should come back home, and then it ends in this crescendo of praise to Yahweh as Israel's rightful king. So, some people see it's structured to give this narrative flow from the beginning to the end. And that whole structure is self-evidently, if that's true, and I I personally think that it is, it's a post-exilic organization that tells that whole story that we started off great, it was David, then everything collapsed, but let's remember that there's a bigger picture here and there's hope for the future. So that seems like a very hopeful structure. It's not just, let's do five books to mimic Torah. Let's do something that actually speaks to our people who have gone through a lot. And now remind me, the the third book, The Collapse of the Monarchy, as you put it, A lot of the lament psalms are in book three. I know they're spread out a little bit, but like the density of lament psalms, I think is higher in that book than in the others. But I may be misremembering that. Well, certainly there's an overwhelming number of community laments, which is weird because community laments by and large are not very well represented. Of The lament itself is the most represented genre in the book of Psalms, which I think is telling and interesting. And also noteworthy that in a lot of faith communities, lament is completely and utterly absent. But within Psalms, you know, lament sort of dominates, but not community laments, not communal laments, not we have experienced this sort of laments. But in book three, that is exactly what you get. You get a lot of we are lamenting, which sort of moves you into this corporate lament of both the fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire and and the right. fall of Judah to the Babylonian. It's a real national lament. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's following the history, you know, I guess that's really another way of putting it. It's following the history of Israel. Yeah. And I don't think this is something, and I don't mean this to disparage anyone. I wouldn't have figured this out on my own, just reading through the book of Psalms. Like this is something where I've really benefited from other people saying, hey, here's a way to approach Psalms. But if you're just like doing a read through the Bible in a year program, I don't know. It seems like it's it's just not that evident. But once you hear it, then everything starts to click and you say, oh my gosh, there's a lot more going on here than just this random hymnal with a bunch of different genres haphazardly attached. With that, and maybe we can wrap up our time here Thinking through some of the structure, and you said that maybe some of the narrative or even the thematic through lines of all five books of the Psalms, is there a way to talk about a theology of the Psalms? Is there Are there common ways of talking about God and talking about how God interacts with the world that we can sort of craft some sort of theology of the Psalms? Or is it, how diverse is it? Um, and maybe what are some of those themes? I'm sure that there are people who talk about the theology of Psalms. And I assume that there's like some threads that run throughout. In the book, I'm really at pains though to celebrate the diversity within Psalms. 
so I talk a lot about the culturally embedded snapshots of an individual psalmist's theology that may sort of be in tension with someone else's, another psalmist's theology. Especially if you just think about the psalm's genres. You know, the psalmist of Psalm 88, where darkness is their closest friend, I don't know how good of a time that psalmist would have if he was kicking back some beers with the psalmist who has written a really happy deep, peppy. Uh, yeah, happy, <laughs> a theological, like God is so good. You know, like that sort of song. I don't know if those the two- The sun will not scorch you. The moon will not, you know, you're, you're, you're safe. It was a Psalm 121. Everything's going to work out great. Yes. Those He's two like, people no, together in a room, I don't know if they're going to have a great time. Now, underneath of that, Maybe if you push the psalmist of Psalm 88 to say, is God good? They might say, yeah, but not today. But those sort of different theological themes that are coming out in their work, I just want to let them sit there, and I want to let them sit there in tension without trying to make everything harmonious and every psalmist saying the same exact thing, because I don't think that's necessarily what we see here in Psalms. And sometimes that's based on the different contextual situatedness. Like if you get somebody who's writing in the shadow of the Babylonian exile, their take is going to be a little bit different than maybe somebody who's writing earlier, perhaps. But just those those situational realities are really driving the bus in how these people are talking about their theology. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a minister, so that comes out a little bit in how I process and how I think. But that sells really well because within any congregation or any group of people, you've got very different ideas about how they have experienced the divine and allowing their lived theology to sit maybe in tension with one another is the most beautiful gift that we might be able to give them as opposed to saying, oh, no, 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 you got to turn to trust and you got to kind of move beyond. You got to sing this praise psalm, even though your entire world is falling apart. You need to rush the grief. You need to rush the lament and get over here with the rest of us because we're going to sing, you know, about how good God is. I just, I don't want that to be the case. And I don't really see that happening in psalms anyway. Right. And, you know, just to bring it to a close here, the diversity of you know the people who couldn't sit with each other, the psalm authors, the diversity that we see in the Psalter and the Book of Psalms, really it's sort of a microcosm of how the Hebrew Bible as a whole works, where you have these diverse voices and no one's trying to mute the less happy ones. It's just part of the reality of the life of following Yahweh or the life of faith. And, and I think in that respect, there's a lot that the book has to offer. You know, and hopefully your book will also be a lot to offer. There we go. What a segue. To help them understand a- it. Oh, it's going to be great. So anyway, but listen, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. We know that you're a busy pastor type and we just podcast. We don't have anything to do except sit around once a week and talk to people. So thank you for being here. We really appreciate it and uh, can't wait for the book to come out. You are very welcome. And I can't wait for it to come out either. I hope it is meaningful for many people. It will be. Thanks, bud. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. 
And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Hunning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau.